Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. We'll have it up there on the screen. If you don't happen to have your Bible with you, that's fine. But uh, if you have it, it's always good to, to look in the Word and to see what uh, we discover there. As the Word is our authority for all that we do, for all that we believe. This morning, obviously, uh, we come to the resurrection passage. It's a passage that um, we encounter constantly, continually, uh, every year. We come back to this passage. We come back to this reflection of the gospel writers and exactly how this event impacted them. John tells us uh, that he uh, heard of the resurrection from Mary who had been at the tomb earlier that morning with the other women to try and prepare Jesus' uh, body for burial, uh, not having had the chance to do that uh, following his death uh, because of regulations concerning Passover and Sabbath and so forth. Uh, they had returned uh, on Sunday morning to try and uh, take care of that endeavor, take care of that task. And they had discovered the, the empty tomb, and they had returned uh, to Mary had returned back to Peter and John and um, had told them that the tomb was empty. And Peter and John, being excited, uh, ran to the tomb. What has happened? What would they discover there? What would they encounter there? And uh, I love how John includes the little detail that he outran Peter uh, there in, uh, verse, uh, in verse 4. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. I'm not sure why he included that little detail, but I find it interesting that John is the author, and he's the one who's winning the race. Um, it's a little bit of, again, just insight of all the things that are going through their mind at that time. They get there. John doesn't enter the tomb, but, but Peter does, and he sees um, men. Uh, he sees the linen cloth where Jesus had, uh, had been laying. And Mary at this point has returned to the tomb as well. And then the disciples leave. They're not really understanding what's going on. And this is where we pick up here uh, in verse 11 of chapter 20. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not see that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this great event, we look at this moment in history that changed everything, God, I pray that you would hope, open our, our hearts and our minds to the truths you would have us see, the things you would have us to understand. 
God, help us to respond according to your wish, your desire, to submit to who you are and your claim on our lives, and to leave here with a renewed commitment to follow you in all we do. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. The exchange between Mary and Jesus here is very telling. She doesn't know him. She doesn't see him. The text tells us that she was standing face to face with Jesus, and yet she didn't recognize him. It wasn't until he spoke her name in that way that he had spoken it so many times before. Mary that she realized who she was standing in front of. And, and I want us to, to answer just a, a simple question today. And that is, do you see Jesus? Do you see him? Do you recognize him? Do you understand who he is? Mary Magdalene here, she thought he was a gardener. Other accounts tell us of, of other encounters that he had. With Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus, they thought Jesus was just a fellow traveler. Later on, Jesus is standing on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee as Peter and his friends are out uh, in the boat. And it says they didn't recognize him. John writes that when the eleven first saw the risen Jesus, they thought he was a ghost or a spirit of some sort. All of these individuals encountered Jesus after the resurrection, and at least for a moment, at least for a time, they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. Why? Well, I think there's, there's basically three reasons we don't recognize somebody or don't recognize Jesus. I think the first is he's not what we're expecting. I think that's the case here. Mary has already had it in her mind, already put it in her mind that Jesus has been, his body has been stolen, it's been taken away. And so when he appears to her, she automatically assumes, what, this, this can't be him. It must be a gardener. It must be somebody who's, who's taken care of this area and this, this place, and surely he would know who took Jesus. I remember several years ago, when I was in college, um, my brother is also a pastor, and, and as I was driving home from, from college, it was a 13-hour trip, um, I was doing so actually on a Sunday, which normally I didn't do, but this particular trip I was, and, and as I was getting into the Phoenix area where I'm, where I'm from, I thought, you know what, it's, it's time for my, my brother's church service. They had an evening service there. And, I thought, you know, I'll just I'll just slip in and, and worship with them. Be a good time being able to worship with my brother here and preach and so forth. And so I came in and I, I I walked down and I sat probably the third or fourth row there in the church. And my brother he gets up and he begins to preach. And several times we made eye contact. I mean, there were several times when I clearly had his eyes meet my eyes. He gets about three-quarters of the way through his sermon, and he goes, that's my brother. 
He looked at me several times throughout that sermon, but he didn't recognize me. Why? Because he wasn't expecting to see me there. He had no idea. It was not in his brain. It was not in his head that his brother was going to stop in for worship that night. His brother was in Texas as far as he knew. And so he wasn't looking for me. He wasn't expecting me, so he didn't see me. And I think a lot of times with with individuals that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to, to seeing Him, recognizing Him, encountering Him, whether it's in a church service or, or in some other a setting as, as they're praying or, or reading Scripture or whatever, they don't recognize Him because they're really not expecting to see Him there. So often we come to church, we come in, we sit down, we go through the service, we sing the songs or, or not, or, or we listen to the message or not. Because it's what we've always done. It's what we're supposed to do. And we come in and we don't really expect anything. We don't really think we're going to encounter a living God. So guess what? We don't. We don't. We haven't prepared our hearts or minds in that direction, and so we don't see Him. I think a second reason we don't see Jesus too often is we're looking in the wrong place. And it's not so much Jesus necessarily that we're looking for. We're just looking for satisfaction. We're looking for answers. We're looking for fulfillment in this life. And so we start looking in all sorts of activities all sorts of events, some of which can be very good. But they're not Jesus. They're not the one who made us. They're not the one who created us. They're not the one we were built to have relationship for. C.S. Lewis says, if you're looking through this earth and nothing here satisfies, then that's probably a pretty good indication you were not made. For this earth. You were made for something more. You were made for someone more. That someone is God. Someone is Jesus Christ. You were made to have a relationship with Him, and you will never find the fulfillment, the hope, the joy, the peace, all the things we talk about scripture uh, in Scripture and in life, God providing. You'll never find those things until you find it in But a third reason I think we sometimes miss Jesus is we're looking for a wrong person. We have defined Jesus according to our definitions. This is who we think Jesus is. This is who we think God is. And we have identified him. We've outlined him. We've, we've characterized him. We have created him in our minds, in our image, in our, in our perspective. And so when we encounter the real Jesus, when we encounter the, the real sovereign God, we don't recognize Him. That doesn't look like the God I've created in my mind, in my understanding. And this is where I, I want to spend most of our time here this morning, is getting a, a proper picture of 
who Jesus is. And we need to start with that question, what does he look like to you? Because until you come face to face, and, and until you recognize, until you acknowledge your image of Jesus, you can't really determine if it's right or wrong. You can't really understand if you're defining things the right way unless you have some sort of concept of how you're defining them at all. What does Jesus look like to you? Do you even believe he exists? Is he the need leader, the one who meets your needs, the one who answers all your prayers the way you would have them answered? Is he just a good teacher? Has some great things to say about getting along and loving your neighbor? Is he just a long list among many people who claim to be God but who were confused or mistaken in their estimates? Is he the God who, who fits your categories of, of religion and, and faith and hope but never really puts any challenge on you or any call to you to change? or to be transformed. Over the last several weeks, we have been moving through the Bible. We, we started before creation. What scriptures tell us about that? And we move through each section of the scriptures. Genesis, the law, the historical books, the prophetic books. And one of the things I hope that we've seen, I hope that we've discovered, is that if there's one view of God you must possess, it's that He is King. He is in control, and we are not. He is the authority. If he is king, that means he has a kingdom. And to understand him, we have to understand what his kingdom is. And the first thing we understand about his kingdom, according to this passage, according to this event, this moment, is that it's a climactic kingdom. It's the culmination of the journey. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's what we've seen playing out. It's what we've seen expressed. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews says that, that God has at many times, in many ways, revealed himself, all leading up to what? The revelation of his son. And as I said, as we've gone on this journey, hopefully we've seen that. We, we saw that before the foundation of the world. God was looking into the future, making a plan 
for what his son would accomplish. He created this world with love and in love. He created this world to, to be relational. Why? Because he was relational. The Trinitarian, the triune God has always existed. He didn't need to create as, as if he were empty in some way and needed some sort of fulfillment. He created simply as an outgrowth of the relationship he already had, the love that he already possessed. Then as he created, he, he did so with, with sovereignty and, and with provision for his creation, making the way so that there was nothing that his creation would face that he had not already provided for them. And then man rebelled. Man rejected him. Man turned away. Man shook his fist at God saying, I can do better. And that perfect creation that God had made became corrupted. And sickness and hate and violence confusion and chaos, all the things we see around us in the world today that puzzle us and trouble us, they entered into existence in that moment, in that decision. How easy would it have been for God just to say, I'm done. I'm done. But he didn't. He resolved to rescue us. He resolved to, to bring us back to that status of relationship, to bring us back to that, to that place of connecting with him, of understanding him, of walking with him, of appreciating him, of enjoying him. And you see that played out throughout the biblical text, sometimes through judgment, sometimes through grace, but always God reaching out to say, I'm here, I love you, I want a relationship with you. Come home. Come back. Through the law and the prophets, he, he laid the foundation of, of his expectations, of his nature, of his character to us. He, he expressed those things to us so that we would understand who he is and, and what we're missing out on. And then in the fullest of time, in the, in the perfect moment in history, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus stepped into creation. God became man and dwelled among us. The air we breathe, he breathed. The chaos we encountered, he encountered. The loss that we go through, he experienced false accusations and, and cruelty of, of all kinds, even to what? Death on a cross. A form of death so painful that it gave birth to its own word for pain. You ever experienced something that, that you just can't describe it? Maybe it's so good you can't describe it. Maybe it's so bad you can't describe it. But there's, there's just this encounter with it, and you're, you just, I don't know, there's no word for it. 
That was humanity in relationship to crucifixion. There was no word for the pain. So we created one, excruciating. That's a word for pain that you kind of reserve for those moments when it's beyond your capacity to deal with. That's what crucifixion was. Jesus died on the cross out of love for you and for me as an expression of His obedience to the Father. It all came together in that moment when He declared, it is finished. The journey that we've been on, the path that we've been on, has been accomplished. The way for relationship and renewal between man and God has been renewed, restored. And he invites us to participate. He invites us to be a part of this kingdom. But again, before we respond, before we, we look at that, let, let's see a little bit more of what this kingdom is and what it's like. Besides being the climax of, of history, besides being the, the turning point of all of life, there's some other truths about it that are significant for us to understand, that, that are significant for us to respond to. The next thing we see is that it's a surprising In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's Paul saying there? Simply what Paul is saying there is, it doesn't make sense. The way God chose to work is not logical to man. When you think about it, how, how, are, how are kingdoms formed? When, when a kingdom is created, how is it, how is it formed? It, it's, it's usually formed by some sort of takeover, some sort of military endeavor, some imposition of force. I'm going to be your king now. And I'm going to set up my kingdom and you're going to be a part of it, whether you like it or not. And the kings, whether they're good or bad, they're what? They're, they're forceful. They're, they're this authoritative figure. They're the power embodied. Then why do we have our king? on a cross. And why do we have a king whose subjects are rejecting him? Why is the one being crucified's mind on everyone but himself? And you just look at the at the seven words of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Mother, meet your son. He hands Mary off to John to be taken care of. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. It's accomplished. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Pastor, what about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isn't that a kind of a self-centered prayer? Not if you understand it contextually. Because that sentence, that phrase comes from Psalm 22.1. It wasn't simply Jesus crying out, God, where have you gone? It was Jesus praying a prayer. It was Jesus quoting Scripture. And if you look there in Psalm 22, you, you do indeed have a psalm of lament. It's a, it's a psalm expressing sorrow and grief over feelings of abandonment. But what you also discover as you move through that psalm is that toward the end, the psalmist expresses something quite surprising. And he says simply this, By what is happening to me here today, all men will come to you. Jesus' prayer there in Psalm 22 wasn't a cry of abandonment. It was, just like the other statements, an expression of victory. Here on the cross, I am accomplishing what God has called me to accomplish. And by what happens to me here today, despite the pain, despite the anguish, despite the, the real grief that I'm experiencing here, people will come to God. Come to the Father. It's totally unexpected. Totally surprising. But that's who He is and that's what His kingdom is supposed to be like. He is a man who was God but became servant. And we are called to mimic him in our own lives. We are called to die. Why? So that we might live. We're called to love our enemies rather than conquer them. We're called to commit to priorities that are not of this earth and convictions that the world finds foolish. We're called to be last in order to be first. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Because only in that path, only on that journey, would the kingdom be inaugurated. Only in that journey could man find relationship with God. And as people who walk, who follow Christ afterwards, we need to understand that we cannot expect any better response from the world than he received. John 15 says, The world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. As believers, 
As Christians, we're called to come be a part of a kingdom where people are going to hate you. Now let me be clear about something because there's, I think, some confusion sometimes in Christianity about this idea of the world hating us. Jesus is not talking about the world hating you because you're a jerk. Because you're self-righteous. That's not the kind of hatred he's talking about here. And yet too often that's what Christians have become. We become individuals, or, or people at least who come to church, we become individuals who pride ourselves in being hated, but the reason we're hated is not because we're living righteously, not because we're living lovingly, it's not because we're living in a way that mimics Christ, it's because we ourselves are hateful. People hate us because we don't love them. And we're living lives and we're proclaiming truths as we see it. That don't offer hope. That don't offer life. That don't offer a future. They simply set up the us and them mentality. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to live lives of sacrifice, not success, of faithfulness and commitment, not victory, as we so often want to define it. He's calling us to serve others. He's calling us to die to ourselves. And the world won't understand that. The world won't understand a person who prays for their enemy. The world won't understand a, a person who submits sometimes to the painful realities just so the gospel can go forward. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It's a surprising kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. But the good news is it's also a powerful kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as, as by a man came death, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Be each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed will be death itself. In these few words, reflecting upon the resurrection, reflecting upon what Christ accomplished on that first uh, Easter morning, Paul says what? The kingdom gives us power over sin. 
you are in Christ, you are free. You're free. You've been redeemed. You've been rescued. You have been delivered. The guilt, the shame, the confusion, the hurt that, that so often fill our lives because we've made poor choices, we've made poor decisions. God, in His grace, deals with those when we surrender ourselves to Him. He talks about power over death, which means what? Life. Jesus said that He came what? To give us life, but not just life, abundant life, full life, total life, complete life. Life beyond your imagination. That's what Christ came, came to give. That's what Christ came to offer. Paul also mentioned power over the grave, which is why it's hope. It's hope. Many of you this year have have lost loved ones over the last couple of years through, through COVID and other things that have gone on. We, we've seen a lot of people pass. And it's right to mourn. Paul tells us, mourn. But then he adds something. He adds something that is so, so very precious. He says, don't mourn like those without hope. Because in Christ, we have hope. That the grave is not the end. That this life is not all that there is. There's more. There's a future, and there's a future because it is ultimately a relational kingdom. Back where we started, God created out of his sense of relationship. God has pursued out of his desire for relationship. God sent his son to die to restore that relationship, and one day, we will experience that relationship in full and total. If we have surrendered, if we've entered into that relationship in the time that we were offered. Scripture tells us one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody's going to admit it. Everybody's going to acknowledge it. The most arrogant, boastful, self-centered individual who ever lived, whoever that may be, will one day acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is Lord. But there will be a difference between those who admit it because it's simply undeniable when he sits in power and in authority. And those who Admit it now in response to his invitation to life and joy. Jesus 
calls on us to enter into a relationship, and he calls on us to enter that relationship by what? By taking up our cross and following him, which is an invitation to die to ourselves, to put ourselves aside and enter into relationship connection. And he understands that's a big ask. In Luke chapter 14, 27, 28, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Jesus' point is, is quite simple there, quite clear there. If you would follow me, if you would desire a relationship with me, you must take up your cross, which means die to yourself. But understand, that's a big ask, and so count the cost before you do. Count the cost before you do. This is not a journey you turn back from. This is not a, a journey that remains incomplete. This is a journey that requires perseverance. Empowered by the Spirit, empowered by God, indeed, but it does re indeed requires us hanging in there. There's a story told, the tradition of a, a group of monks known as the Desert Fathers. One day, a young man, monk asked an older member why it was so that so many came out into the desert seeking God, and yet most of them did not stay, but returned to their old lives. And the old monk said to him, Yesterday my dog spied a rabbit in the bushes and began to give chase. He barked with joy and excitement over what he had seen, and other dogs heard his bark and joined in the chase. But soon, however, some of these other dogs began to drop out of the hunt. A few stayed with the chase through the night, but in the morning, only my dog was still chasing the rabbit. He says, do you know why? And the monk said, the young monk said, no, I don't understand why. Why? He said, it's simple, because my dog is the only one who actually saw the rabbit. The journey of the believer is not easy. It's abundant. It's joyful. It's beyond description in many ways. But it's not easy. There will be temptations. There will be struggles. There will be all sorts of things that are pulling for our attention and our focus and our energy. The only way we will stay on track, the only way we will be able to persevere, the only way we will be able to hold on is if we, in fact, see Jesus. If we are, in fact, pursuing Him and His desires and His heart and His mind, seeking to be like Him. And so I ask you this morning what I asked you to begin with. Do you see Jesus? Do you understand who He is? Do you understand what He's called you to? Do you understand 
that apart from Him there is no life. Do you understand? That though His call is to come and die, His result, His invitation is always to life. To something more. To something bigger. To something greater. You were made for more than just the things of this world. You were made for more than just the, the simple little pleasures that we experience. You were made for relationship with God. And He invites you to that relationship today. He invites you to lay down all the other things put aside all the things that don't matter, to let go of those struggles, to let go of those hurts, and to experience new life. And it's as simple as praying, God, take me and use me as you will. I give my life to you. But it's as monumental as laying down your life for him. Consider the cost Jesus invited us to. But in, embedded in that invitation, embedded in that reality, is the knowledge that the cost we pay now will reap rewards beyond what we can imagine, both in the present, and in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray here this morning. There's someone here who does not have a relationship with you, someone who has never given their life to you, someone who's never responded to your invitation for life and hope and joy and fullness. God, I pray that you would draw them in this moment. Lord, help them to see their desperate need for you. Help them to understand that more than they need their next breath, they need you. And God, help them to be obedient to that, to be courageous, to, to step up, to stand out, to, to come to express that during this time of invitation, to say, I may not understand everything that's involved, but I know I need Jesus. God, use this time to, to correct the hearts of, of believers here, those of us who have committed to you, those of us who, who understand the change and the transformation and the hope that you bring, but sometimes still lose sight of some of those priorities and those emphases. Lord, help us to renew our, our stance and our commitment as well. Help us to leave here with a renewed commitment to, to love our neighbors, all our neighbors. To walk with a spirit and a kindness driven by who you've made us to be. And not the old life that we sometimes cling to. Lord, use this time for your glory, for your purposes, for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name I pray.